you're listening to IIPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, Curator of Fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Matt. Hi, Megan. Today on the IIPod, we're going to focus on the Shafox that call the Duke Lemur Center home and on the Lemur Center's crucial role in the global effort to create a genetic safety net for endangered Shafox. Our expert today has a role in both what's going on here at the Lemur Center and this larger international effort. My name is Britt Keith, and I'm the DLC Colony Curator. My main job is to manage all the lemurs that we have here. We have several species with about 210 animals at any one given time. So I manage all the breeding and the moves. We move animals in the spring. We move animals in the winter to get them to better places like in our woods versus our cages and for our education department to be able to view the lemurs. I also work closely with our conservation department. So I do some work in Madagascar with certain species over there. And we're also this year starting more work with a zoo uh, in one area of Madagascar that deals with confiscated pet lemurs. We have a huge team on ground. So there's 15 animal care technicians, uh, an assistant curator, and I work closely with another curator as well. So basically anything animal or colony wise, particularly breeding uh, and and exchanging mates and sending animals to and from other institutions is under my belt. So usually when I hear the word curator, I think it's someone that's overseeing a collection of objects, things like artwork or, or maybe natural history collection. But are there similarities between that definition of curator and what you do? Like, for example, on our educational tour paths, we need to pick and choose the, the species we want everyone to see and to learn about. We need to manipulate the colonies so that we have the right size of groups and we have the right animals available for research and the right ones that can free range outside. And it takes a team of people to do this work because the curatorial role is so critical to everything else we do here at the Lemur Center. If you think of a Venn diagram, we're kind of in the middle. So the three members of the team each have specific roles. Let's start with yours, Britt. I take care of all of the direct animal stuff. There's Meg, curator of behavioral management and welfare. And her specialties are putting together really good welfare assessments so that we can sort of grade our animals to make sure that they're living their best lives. And she has a training background specialist, which I don't have. Training not animals to do silly things, but for behavioral things like getting onto a scale and getting into a a kennel so we can weigh them. But even more advanced behaviors like for research where they have to do a leaping study to see how far they can jump or hang by their feet, things like that. And she's very good organizing that. Meg spoke with us in season one of IIPod. The third member of the curatorial team is Kristen, our assistant curator, and she directly takes care of the staff and all the facilities involved with staffing the center and having safe environments for the animals. And then she also works closely with the tour department so she can facilitate those things. Britt, how did you get to the DLC? What led you to overseeing lemurs in this way? At the age of 16, I did a internship at the Bronx Zoo and fell in love with the field. Thought I wanted to be a vet at one time when I went to university, having my hands inside of cows just wasn't for me. Uh, so I changed and went to a zoo animal technology program. And it was just fantastic. And working with wildlife in captivity was really where my heart sort of fell. I've done some work in the wild too. So I worked in the Everglades for almost 10 years. So I got my master's degree at the University of Miami and uh, spent a lot of time learning a lot of information and literally risking my life in the Everglades environment with alligators and panthers. (laughs) 
Britt also worked at the London Zoo and zoos in Miami and Santa Fe before joining the Lemur Center in 2007. Now... I'm on call 24-7, which I actually really like. That is a, just a general part of my everyday, even at night. I was here at midnight on Christmas Day this year, checking some animal temperature issues that we had in our building. So I quite enjoy that connectivity. But on a daily basis, I would come in, I'd go downstairs and I look at what's going on for the day for the technician team. There's a lot of organization to do when it comes to shipping animals in and out. So if I have animals coming in, I do a lot of conferring with the vet team at that day to know that they're coming in that day and that quarantine has to be prepped. And then, of course, there are the emails and meetings and Zoom calls. I feel like people are always surprised by how much working with animals means working with people. I would say there's probably at least a day a week that I don't see the lemurs. I try to get out in the colony as often as I can. And yeah, it is kind of strange to be away from animal care. Britt's role also requires a lot of long-range planning, not only at the lemur center, but in her role beyond our home base here in Durham, North Carolina. Working with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums and other organizations and collaborating with other scientists, Britt looks out for lemurs, and in particular, the Shafak. Well, I always think 30 years out, which is hard to imagine, but most of our diurnal lemurs can live until they're 30. So making plans for all the lemurs, I think thinking long-term is critical. Certainly five years at the very minimum of a mammal's life, I think is responsible. So when I zoom in and look at Shafak, I do what's called planning meetings with a population biologist at Lincoln Park Zoo, and we can look back right to their great-grandfathers or great-grandmothers. So we plan based on genetics. So what we try to do is pair our most genetically valuable animals together. And we also try to breed for what's called demographics, which is just sheer numbers. And you can't have five animals that are really genetically diverse and breed only them and all the others die out or you have no animals left. You have a particular role with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums working with something called the Species Survival Plan or SSP for the Shafak. If there are captive populations on different continents, there's even more coordination with international partners. But can you help give us some more information about all of that work? So each species survival plan has a coordinator. I am the SSP coordinator of Cockerel Shafak. I speak with the SSP coordinator in Germany who happens to manage those animals over there. Species survival coordinator is the person who is the advocate for that particular species. We're supposed to be the experts of those species so that we know all about their social stuff. We know all about how to feed them. We know about train people to take care of them. Uh, and so I work under what's called the Persimian Taxon Advisory Group, which sort of, uh, which is under the AZA umbrella. And they provide support for everybody who houses persimians, lemur persimians, and also lorises and bush babies. But uh, basically that's down to me to make the decisions on who's breeding, who's contracepted. And as you work on animal care and breeding, you're keeping an eye on how this endangered species can survive. That must require a lot of decisions and planning. There are the things that we're trying to do that will give the program more clout, so to speak. There's only nine globally managed programs in the world, and I want to be one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I think we fit uh, because we just sent eight animals to Europe, and we're also doing work with Shafak, hopefully in the near future, in Madagascar. And so those three pieces of the puzzle uh, will allow us to apply for a global management program, which uh, provides us more access to funding, potentially. And the AZA does have rules and guidance that we follow in order to participate in their programs, like... 
we never purchase animals, we never sell animals. Uh, we only work with other facilities that are AZA regulated and accredited. And I know you just love all of the associated paperwork. It's filling out all kinds of paperwork is certainly part of my job. And we have a registrar that helps us with permitting too. So we work with the Fish and Wildlife, the USDA's for our uh, inspections. Um, we work with all kinds of other facilities as well as partners. So how many shafak are there in human care? So in facilities like the lemur center or zoos? There's only one species of shafak in the U.S. in captivity, and that's the cockle shafak. How many cockle shafak are there outside of Madagascar in the world? So we have 62 animals. And you recently worked on effort to send some over to Europe. How many are currently living in Europe? Seven animals are currently living in Europe. And so everyone else is? Is in the U.S. Okay. And then how many of those are at the lemur center? 29. More than half of the shafak that exists in the U.S. are here. Correct. So how does your experience after all your time at the Lemur Center help you decide where and how a Shafak will best thrive? We have the data to support our husbandry protocols. So we know what doesn't work and we know what does work. And we're always open to finding out new things, but we have the data to support that. And we have all those sort of metrics and um that help facilities to house such really delicate species, but we require that they come here for about a week and spend time training with our, with our staff and our veterinary staff. And they also have to, to agree to all the conditions on how to care for them so that they have the best chance to survive and breed. And we learn something new every single year of birthing and breeding season. It's really quite dramatic, the learning curve that we still have. So even a lot of very good zoos, uh, just don't have the staffing or the time to take care of some of these super, super delicate species. You mentioned that the cockerel shafak is just one species of shafak, but why don't the other species of shafak have a species survival plan? Well, we had other shafak species in captivity a long time ago, our last one being the diadem shafak. He was the last one. He only came in with his mother and father and then that offspring. Those parents died very quickly, didn't know how to take care of shafak like we do now. And diadema shafak are probably even more sensitive species than the cockerel shafak. What we knew about shafak at the time was limited. We didn't know enough about the breeding programs and all of their needs in captivity. So those populations died off. And cockerel shafak were easier to obtain and to bring into captivity and maybe hardier on the end of shafak. Over time, there has been so much that the animal care and vet teams have learned about providing the right care to these delicate lemurs. We learned very quickly back then that what helped them to survive year round and because and, they were dying at certain times of year, like the winter, was providing leaves. So getting a good browse program in place was one of them, as well as learning their reproductive, keeping mom with the baby alone, was a key thing in keeping them surviving and healthy. You've mentioned how delicate the shafak is. How does that compare to other lemurs? But I always say to people on a sliding scale of lemurs, if you have uh, one end being super hardy, you have eye eyes and mouse lemurs and ringtail lemurs that are super hardy. Their end being really delicate and literally dying from almost everything that 
can happen to them, and that's cockal shafak. And it's because the cockal shafak has a spiral colon, and they also have a very, very particular diet. In fact, we can't replicate their diet. They have to have leaves every single day, meaning in the form of browse. And in the wintertime, we don't have leaves on our trees, so we have to cut leaves all through the summer to freeze for the winter. And if they don't get leaves in the winter, they will die. Their gut biome is very complicated. Uh, the other thing is they become s- susceptible to all kinds of diseases and pathogens in our environment here. Things like cryptosporidia that used to kill the shafak right away. But we, in the last 20 years, certainly the last 10 years, um, we've done a lot better being able to have them survive that infection. We also have uh, listeria that comes in on our food and sometimes in on reptiles and birds that come into the caging that they're very susceptible to. Um, and just all in all, they're super delicate species are very hard to keep. For example, we have cockle shavak have been in captivity since the late 60s, early 70s, and there's still only 62 animals in that population. That's it. I mean, adults die, several of them, every couple of years we have adults for one reason or the other dying, so we can't seem to grow the population. Where if you think of uh, ringtail lemurs, there's over 600 ringtail lemurs in captivity, and they've been in captivity almost the same amount of time. So they're really easy. They twin. They're super easy to take care of. They'll eat anything. They are uh, really large families. They, they take care of each other. Their family structure keeps them stronger. And Shafaks have a much smaller family. And you've definitely talked about the importance of free-ranging for Shafak, even in terms of their reproductive habits. Yeah, the most important thing for cockroach shafak is to be able to graze year-round on soil, on bark, on pine needles, on leaves in the summer, on new buds, anything like that. So we try to free-range all of our cockroach shafak, and that ranges from an acre and a half to 14 acres. And they go out there either in pairs or with their families, whatever their family status or group is, they go out there. When they have their babies, we don't free range the infants or the entire family group until the infants are at least 10 weeks old and has to be thriving and clinging really well because mom does not hold her babies. They have to cling all by themselves, going 20 feet from tree to tree. So that's a lot of G-forces the baby has to deal with. Um, we never free range just part of the group. I imagine that there are times at the lemur center when one shafak or another needs to be temporarily moved to another place or away from the group for health or research. If they're out of sight from the group, it sometimes can create tension when you put them back and they and they literally look at that animal who's been gone or out of sight for an hour and go, we don't remember you. You're you need to leave. What do you do then? We have handled that a number of different ways by sometimes separating the whole group out so that no one can see anybody. So no one can form those alliances or removing the adult female because uh, that sometimes that helps to keep everyone cool. When she's away, everyone just sort of sits around sometimes. We also try to keep animals actively engaged in enrichment, hanging stuff that they have to work out and be cognitive about so they don't recognize that someone's gone from the group. And so when the other one turns up, they're like, oh, yeah, I was doing this. Where were you? And it's not like, wait a minute, you were gone. And now I don't want you back because that's a real big problem in captive social groups. Obviously, we want the Shafak to survive and to be as healthy as possible. But what's our overarching goal? So we want them to be as wild as they can possibly be so they don't lose any of that if in the future, those populations are going to be going back to Madagascar, which is a call for, like you said, any SSB. And there's a million of us. All not losing hope. (laughs) 
female dominance is very strong in Shafak and most lemurs, in fact, almost all lemurs, but in Shafak, it's very dominant. The female, the queens of the group are super, super dominant and they take care of her, bop everyone on the head if they get out of line. The males are at the bottom of the totem pole along with their sons. Um, the males are in charge of kicking out their sons before they become sexually mature. All these professionals and facilities are working together to help the population grow. But there are times when, even knowing what we know about the social structure of Shafox, do you ever have to have one of the Shafox live alone, maybe because their genetics aren't needed or something like that? It's not It's not the right thing for the animal at all. Um, they wouldn't thrive, and it's not good welfare. But it, when I look at the most genetically valuable pairs, they might be already paired up with somebody at another institution. So for me to pull always just the most genetically valuable, I might have to break up a family or ships an animal somewhere else. And that's not always the right thing to do because the animal might be old or they still are in a family group. So there's lots of things to consider. Um, I don't ship any animals that are over the age of uh, 15 or 17, depending on the health of the animal. I don't think that's fair. We don't pull animals out of the group unless we absolutely have to. So like a younger animal, say around three years old, they would usually be in the group for Shafak anywhere between three and seven years old. And 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 sometimes it's it's really difficult to make those decisions because every decision I make affects their direct life and who they're living with and where they're going to go. That's a lot of responsibility. Can you talk a bit more about how ensuring a healthy social structure for an existing Shafak can extend even into the next generation? We really firmly believe that primates will learn from their mothers uh, and their fathers, if they're males, how new family members are cared for in the group. And and if you're if you've had experience with your mom's baby, when you go to have your own baby, that's helpful. We've seen some positive results that way. I like to keep the young females in the groups through their sisters and brothers so that they can practice holding them and taking them from the mom and jumping around with them on them. That's a really important behavior. So learning from their parents gives future parents of a better chance. What are some other care protocols that you've developed that help give the babies the best chance to thrive? One of our protocols is to separate that female that has been single-handedly the most important uh, success uh, in a surviving infant is to keep mom with her baby alone for the first seven or eight days so that no one else steals it. And if it's thriving and clinging and doing really well on day eight, then we introduce it to one family member at a time and they steal the babies and we let them have it for an hour and then we have to steal it back and give it to mom. And that's a really big part of our of our, of our success is that separating moms out by themselves. At the same time, you're working so hard to help the Shabak thrive in captivity. What What's happening in the wild? What about them in their ecosystem in Madagascar? I think ideally that's what we should be doing, protecting, you know, ecosystems and environments so those animals can exist there. But the reality is that that's not what's happening despite our huge efforts. So we provide a safety net for critically endangered species or any species were the environment to ever be an ideal place again. If we, if we took the chance of just focusing on the environment without doing, without the animals that live in it, and that's the plants, the animals that, you know, all the herbs, all the fish, everything, then I think that you're at danger of losing the environment sooner. And then you don't have any species to back up or that to turn around. So I think what we're doing is 
uh, from my professional point of view and opinion, it's the right thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do is to have a safety net of animals, regardless of what they are, where we'd be able to, uh, you know, reforest parts of Madagascar they live. And what an important mission that is. Thanks, Britt, for walking us through so much of what you've learned about the Shafak. And now, a question that we ask each of our iIPod guests. While I know that you appreciate many things about the Shafak, what's your favorite lemur? But my favorite species is actually mongoose lemurs. I like the underdogs. Those little brown bumps on the log are very important to me, and they're fantastic. I know, they really are delightful. Not the flashiest lemur, but such sweet, inquisitive little faces. Well, whether it's mongoose lemurs or cockerel shafak, thank you to all those who learn so much about all of these lemurs so we can give them the best possible chance to thrive. Thank you most of all to you, Britt, for your time. <laughs> oh, you are most welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you and goodbye for now. From Matt and Megan and all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center. Mm-hmm.